thanks to Handy for supporting The Motley Fool. Handy is a cleaning service that provides an easy and convenient way to book home cleaning on a schedule that works for you. To get your first three-hour cleaning for $39 when you sign up for a plan, visit handy.com fool and use promo code fool during checkout. And support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. Because first, Quicken Loans is going to lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. But here's the crucial part: if rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way. Sounds to me like you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. A lot of parents, as their kids grow up, begin to wonder what the eventual empty nest will look like, will feel like. Well, as I previously conveyed on this podcast, I now have direct experience with that, with our youngest having spent last year away as a college freshman. The empty nest, turns out, has many pleasures. Alongside, of course, a little more quiet. Alongside the inevitable little sadnesses of not having offspring prancing or prattling around the house. And one of those pleasures, well, I've discovered, Anyways, is more time. So, as it turns out, in the past year, I've channeled some of the time I once spent actively parenting doing something I used to do a lot more before parenting, and that is reading. Yep, reading books. I think I've read something like 15 books in the past 15 months, and that's probably about triple what I used to do. In the past year, I've greatly enjoyed books like The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly and Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker, Microtrend Squared by Mark Penn, and the novel A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls. And indeed, each of those authors has already been on this podcast or will be on this podcast this month. So, it's a wide array of books aimed both at the future as well as the past, I'd have to say more the future, since that so well suits Rule Breaker Investing, but books about culture, history, technology, and now, yes, gathering. How we gather as human beings. Priya Parker, our author this week on Rule Breaker Investing, has made a career of helping humans gather better. Gatherings like your next business meeting, your wedding, your next networking conference, your child's fifth birthday, wherever three or more are gathered, it can be done better, Priya tells us. It can be more awesome. It really does, along with this is Spinal Tap, it really can go to 11. And I have to say, of all the books I've read in the past year, I think I like this one the most. Priya's advice about finding true purpose in meetings, pop-up rules for parties, never starting funerals with logistics, the list goes on. This book is deeply relevant to all of us of every age and background. And the reason she's written what is probably my book of the year so far, anyway, is because in the true rule breaker spirit, she challenges conventional wisdom, she makes disruptive suggestions, she provokes us to better, more imaginative, sometimes more daring, always more thoughtful ways to do the work of gathering. And that's as hosts, as leaders, as guests, too. As fellow human beings looking to gather better in our homes, our reunions, our businesses and conferences, our rituals. 
So, yep, it's Authors in August month for Rule Breaker Investing. Last week was Seth Godin. This week is an author Seth actually came out and praised recently. My guest today is Priya Parker. I'm so glad you're with us this week. Priya is the founder of Thrive Labs, at which she helps activists, elected officials, corporate executives, educators, and philanthropists create transformative gatherings. She works with teams and leaders across technology, business, the arts, fashion, and politics to clarify their vision for the future and build meaningful purpose-driven communities. She's also the author of the subject of our conversation this week, her brilliant book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. I know you're going to enjoy this week's guest, Priya Parker. Priya, welcome. Thank you for having me. So, I wanted to start with your background, because I kind of loved how you laid it out early in The Art of Gathering. And it's just a good question for us to ask anybody. Where are you from how did it begin? And if you don't mind, I'm just going to read a few sentences that you put up front in the book, and then I'd love for you to riff or give us a little bit more. This is how you present who Priya Parker is. In my work, you say, quote, I strive to help people experience a sense of belonging. This probably has something to do with the fact that I've spent my own life trying to figure out where and to whom I belong. I come on my mother's side from Indian cow worshippers in Varanasi, an ancient city known as the spiritual center of India and on my father's side from American cow slaughterers in South Dakota. To cut a very long story short, my parents met in Iowa, fell in love, married, had me in Zimbabwe, worked in fishing villages across Africa and Asia, fell out of love, divorced in Virginia, and went their separate ways. Both of them went on to remarry, finding spouses more of their own world and worldview. You go on after the divorce, I moved every two weeks between my mother's and father's Households toggling back and forth between a vegetarian, liberal, incense filled, Buddhist, Hindu, New Age universe and a meat eating, conservative, twice a week church going, evangelical Christian realm. So it was perhaps inevitable, you conclude this line with, that I ended up in the field of conflict resolution. Well, that was a spectacular way to introduce yourself to me <laughs> and your readers. Do you want to add anything to that? I just want to make sure it's, that's up front for everybody listening because it's just fascinating. <laughs> I I grew up in a way where truths were given to me very strongly, but from two different sources, and they often conflicted with each other. Mm. And so my entire life, I've learned to both um, honor what I've inherited and question it. And to me, the core of all gathering is doing those two things. And let's go right there, because the word gathering is such an important one. Obviously, it's in the title of your book. It runs throughout the book. I wanted to make sure, for those new to you, that you define for us, what do you mean when you use a word like gathering? I do. I use it as a, um, to describe any time three or more people come together for a purpose. So, I'm the, the book, The Art of Gathering, it's really a book about kind of group dynamics. How do you create meaningful, connective, transformative experiences for groups, um, not one-on-one. So I think the principles of the book can apply to a time when you're meeting with one other person. But I really am interested in what happens when three or more people decide to come together. And it spans everything from giving advice to a friend of yours for her her next New York dinner party to um, world leaders and corporate and funerals and weddings and any time across all of these widely, vastly disparate purposes and experiences that we come together, you're looking to make it more awesome. And it doesn't have to be fancy, and it doesn't have to be formal. So, back-to-school nights, 
PTA meetings, uh, block parties, funerals. Anytime people come together, um, my, my hope is that they're left differently because of it. And in fact, as you structure the book, and we're just going to go right through it because it's so well structured and it's fun. Um, you have kind of eight principles, and there are eight chapters in the book. And I'm going to be the lazy idiot, maybe small f, foolish host who just kind of structures it around the way you've written the book. And chapter one is entitled "Decide Why You're Really Gathering." Most books that deal with the topic of gathering um, deal with the things of gathering. So um, the food, the recipes, the lighting, the flowers, the table setting. And for decades, we've broadly outsourced our wisdom about gathering to chefs and etiquette experts and event planners. And what I wanted to do was write a book from the perspective of a group conflict resolution facilitator, from the perspective of group dynamics, that puts people back at the center of the gathering. And so the first chapter is really about purpose. Decide why you're really gathering. And one of the things that I've come to see is that we tend to conflate category with purpose. So what I mean by that is we're having a wedding or somebody's having a wedding. We think that the um, purpose of a wedding is to get married. (laughs) Or we think the purpose of a birthday is to celebrate a birthday. Or we think the purpose of a board meeting is to get the board together. And the danger of just stopping there is we end up basically replicating what we think a wedding or a board meeting um, or a dinner party should look like without actually stopping to say, why is it that I want people to come together? And so with the example of a wedding, you know, when I work with people or friends, even in my own life that say, why are you getting married? Why are you actually having a, why are you bringing people together? Why not just go to city, you know, city hall? Um, And most people say something like, well, you know, some version of this is what, you know, my family does, or I've always imagined a wedding. And so now it's time to come together and do it. And they skip quickly to the accoutrements of the wedding. So what, you know, the dress, uh, the bridesmaids, the, um, you know, is it the church, the venue, the logistics, the cake. And <laughs> in many weddings, the conversations that end up happening between the couple and between the parents end up happening over proxy wars. So like guest size. Um, or colors. And what those proxy wars end up uh, fighting over is actually what is the underlying purpose of this wedding? Who is this for? Is it to unite the kind of disparate tribes of this young new couple? Is it to honor the parents? Is it to repeat a ritual that, you know, six generations before had done? Or is it for a moment where these two people are coming together and in front of their joint community say, this is who we are now? This is how we are different from you, and this is how we are the same. But this is who we want to be, regardless of what we have inherited. And Priya, you use the phrase, the Passover principle, uh, as a way to help organize our thoughts as we think about why this next gathering would be special. What is the Passover principle? I'm not Jewish, and I interviewed, you know, for this book, I interviewed over 100 gatherers in all walks of life. Um, rabbis, a dominatrix, a photographer that gets you know, seven minutes with a head of state to kind of capture the right shot, and then all of a sudden all the security rushes in, um, <laughs> a, a variety of different people. And one of the things I kept coming back to over and over again was um, in particularly Jewish tradition and culture, uh, gathering is deeply, deeply, and beautifully developed. Um, and the Passover principle, in my language, not theirs, 
um, was this idea that in Passover, and I, I attended various different you know, religious gatherings as part of this research, um, the idea of Passover in part of the um, cadence of the night of, of the person leading it, whether it's a rabbi or you know, the head of the family, says, how is this night different from all other nights? And then the ritual basically goes um, goes through, you know, on this night we eat this, or on this night we we mm-hmm. drink this to remember the tears of this. Or, you know, there, there's obviously different forms depending on which tradition you come from within the Jew- Jewish um, faith. But but the idea of the Passover principle is to ask for every gathering, no matter how small, how is this night different from all other nights? How is this birthday, how is this 37th birthday different from all of my other birthdays? How is this anniversary in this moment in our marriage different from all other anniversaries? How is this pool party at the beginning of summer different from all other pool parties? And to be radical about the idea that every gathering you host can be unique to the moment that you're in. And in addition to you using the word unique and helping us think really intentionally about our upcoming gathering, again, whether we're talking about something that's a family anniversary or we're talking about our next business meeting, you also use an important and interesting word to describe good purpose, and you use the word disputable. So, a good purpose, you say, should be specific, it should be unique, which you just talked about. What do you mean by disputable? I mean that people can dispute it. They can disagree with it. They can think that you are wrong. And um, you know, when I, when, you, when I work with companies and help them, you know, figure out their purpose or their vision, I, it, what I've found over time is the companies that have a vision that people can disagree with start to be a com- become companies that have a voice, that have kind of something to say in the world. And so similarly, I'll give an example. I had a friend of mine whose grandmother was turning 80. Um, she lives in Germany. And her grandchildren, who are now all adults themselves, live in a number of different countries, and she wanted to have a birthday party. Mm -hmm. So she sent an uh, invitation to her adult grandchildren, and she said, come to my birthday party. Your your spouses and your children are not invited. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this, as you can imagine, was a very disputable purpose. But in her mind, she'd never done this before. It was not clear she was going to do it again. But she basically wanted to use her uh, her birthday that year to reconnect with her adult um, grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Disputable, controversial. You could argue for all of the reasons why it's a bad idea and excludes the people that are furthest away from her already. Um, but that's what she wanted. And um, the cousins kind of debated the spouses, some men, some women were thinking, great, not only am I, do I not get to go, I get to be play babysitter. <laughs> But at the end of the day, they thought, okay, you know what? Granny wants it. Let's go. So I was very curious about this, this whole invitation, as you can imagine. And as soon as my friend got back, I, you know, I called him and I said, how was it? And he laughed and he said, it was one of the most magical experiences I've had in a long time and at any family gathering. And I said, why? And he said, Granny's incredible insight was that we had not played together or spent open time together as adults since we were as adults. Hmm. And it gave us a chance to, to reconnect and negotiate our relationship as adult cousins, not just replicating models of what, how we played when we were 13 years old. Hmm. 
And, you know, one more question on purpose. There are the other chapters to get to, but really, purpose, you lead with it. It's such an important thing for us here at The Motley Fool. I mean, as a stock picker, I'm often asking, what is the purpose of this company before I recommend that you or I put our money in it? That's really important Beautiful. to me. So, purpose is key. So, let's just go a little bit deeper. I love the story you told about the baby shower that you had. And this might be a story of when form. Can kind of take over a purpose. Traditional forms sometimes we allow them to overwhelm a more creative sense of purpose. Could you briefly tell the story of your husband wanting to attend your baby shower? <laughs> I was pregnant with our first child, and my friends, my girlfriends, wanted to throw me a baby shower. I said yes without thinking about it. I didn't follow my own rule. <laughs> they jumped to planning the logistics. You know, date, time, what, how would they thoughtfully make this a meaningful gathering? For me, they knew that I would want storytelling in it. <laughs> and um, so it was, still, it was still thoughtful, but it was still, a, the assumption was it was for women, by women. And my husband wanted to come. And at first I thought, like, you, can, you would be an interloper. And, and he just, he kept pushing, like, why can't I come? And, and basically what I began to realize was that a baby shower and the rituals around it, and I, you know, I, I studied this, so I, I, I looked into it, were based on an older time period where, A, women and mothers were the primary and often the only caretaker. And so the identity of new mother was a big one, whereas the identity of father was not as relevant. Um, Esther Perel, the relationship expert um, and sex therapist, says one of the, 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 the most interesting modern invention is the invention of modern fatherhood. And we don't yet have rituals to actually incorporate that reality. Mm. And this is what we were bumping against. And so, long story short, I thought of a baby shower in the same way as I thought of a bachelorette, a bachelorette party, which is this is for women by women. You wouldn't want your men here. But a bachelorette party is the idea of you're preparing a bride for a groom, and then the bachelor has a groom party. But a baby shower reflects an a, a reality when one giving birth was much more dangerous Two, the the woman was the primary kind of caretaker um, and and uh, and three labor itself was dangerous and fortunately in the US not among all populations but that's broadly uh, you know that's changing mm. and so we began to realize maybe a baby shower is the wrong name for what it is that we wanted maybe we have a you know a parent potluck I mean I'm kind of making this up. But what does it mean to have a ritual for new parents um, that embodies the ideas that we are going to have a child and both parents are going to work and both parents are going to raise them? Mm. And by the way, the father, the mother has a nine-month experience where her identity gets transformed through her shape, her physical body changes, and she gives birth. The father doesn't have that. And so how do we actually invent modern ritual um, that is not hokey? But that actually deeply embeds the principles of the society that we're actually trying to create and live in. I want to make sure people don't think that the purpose is just for personal gatherings. Uh -huh. One of my favorite examples um, in the book was I got to sit in at the New York Times page one meeting. Um, and I just want to talk about that for a quick second, which is the page one meeting is a 70 year old meeting. Um, it was founded when the front page of the New York Times basically shaped the conversation of the world the next day. Mm -hmm. um, it was a policymakers looked at, it was read, and it, it, they developed over time this kind of ritualistic meeting. It was literally hosted around a King Arthur-style table, round table. The journalists and editors would come with what they called their offers and pitch it to kind of the, the, the decision makers at the time. And about six, 
six years ago, four years ago, the new executive editor of the Times, Dean McKay, basically realized that the page one meeting no longer made any sense because the page one of the New York Times no longer was what set the news of the day. The homepage did, but the homepage has hundreds of articles all day long. But yet they had this gathering that was the most important gathering hmm. that had outlived its purpose. And um, you can kind of read the book to find out what they did. But part of this is we actually fall into ritualistic gatherings at our companies and our, and our organizations even more than we do in our personal lives. And so the idea of to ask why are we really gathering and what is this meeting for can transform your work. All right, Priya. So from thinking hard about purpose, the very next chapter, you tell us to close doors, to start thinking about who or what we want to exclude from our gathering. Give us some more intel. The age-old adage, the more the merrier, has actually diluted our gathering. It comes from a spirit of generosity. And what I'm arguing is keep, keep, keep the spirit of generosity in your gathering. But be generous to the people that you want there. One of the things that I've seen at a lot of gatherings is that we're afraid to exclude people because we're afraid of offending them. And by including them, in part because you want to be polite to the people in the room, the focus of a gathering can get diluted. Um, I recently, uh, my father recently retired. Um, He was a civil servant for 25 years. He retired from a government agency two weeks ago. And um, he called me up to talk about his retirement party that some of his colleagues were planning for him. And he said, you know, uh, there's three other people this month that were um, also retired. I was thinking maybe I, I'd invite them to join to join the <laughs> retirement party. And I very said, generous, great shock. Yeah, I said I said do not do that. I said please do not do that. And he said why? It, it would be so generous of me. And you know they're planning. I feel kind of bad. They're planning this stuff for me. What about those people? And I said those people should get you know should have their own retirement party. You and betcha. I just played it out for him. I said. If you, who then are you going to invite? What if they invite colleagues that don't know you but know them? Are you going to have a toast for all of you together? Are you going to kind of broadly not do anything, you know, that would offend either one of you? Like you, you have muddled purposes. And so in that case, I was saying exclude well, meaning don't try to honor multiple people at the same retirement party. Um, but for your guests, the same thing that closing doors means to choose a radical, disputable purpose, and then to ask who will allow this purpose to come true. Um, Another example from the book is a, um, a man, this is in the 50s, he was an Egyptian, uh, a graduate student, moved to a small town in Germany, realized there was no student-run bar. Um, his name is Osman Abu State, and started a student-run bar. And the, it was kind of cool because the rules were different then. They served beers out of bottles, which at the time was considered kind of rude. They didn't pour it into a glass. But they, it was also student-only. And one day the vice mayor of the town came to the bar. He was not a student, and the bodyguard wouldn't let him in. And he made a big fuss, and then the owner came out, Osman. Um, And it was this moment of truth, whether he closed the door physically and said, vice mayor, you can't come in, or you can come in. And he held the line, and he didn't let the vice mayor come in. And that day, that gathering uh, basically put its teeth into its purpose, which is to say this this is not just for students. It's also not for not students. And he was willing to destroy value, which is kind of like a local celebrity coming into his, you know, his, hmm. his establishment in order to preserve its purpose. 
And you know that that exclusionary mentality. Just to broaden it, um, thinking about the world of business, how about Southwest Airlines deciding not to charge us for our bags? In a sense, that's the same thing going on. They're excluding the opportunity to make money, but they're excluding that and dif- differentiating themselves and making themselves probably well the most valuable airline. Uh, of the last 30 years, partly through those kinds of radical decisions. And it's a radical decision on the basis of Southwest Airlines, in part because it's not a shtick. It's not a marketing ploy. They know the purpose of their company. They know who they want to fly their company. They know who they want to hire to to, to be on their planes. Mm -hmm. And they made a decision that charging for bags didn't match that. So, similarly, maybe the competitors then try to Matt try to compete by also not charging for bags, though Delta and United have not followed suit, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but the, but and then they wonder if they were to, they wonder why they're not getting the same, um, you know, the same Loyalty. revenue bump as Southwest. Yeah. And it's because they're they need to figure out their own purpose, and they need to figure out their decisions of what they caught they cut or what they charge more for to align with their purpose. If you only copy somebody else's solution, it becomes a shtick. And so, part of gathering well and really part of good purpose and identity is what you aren't about and what you're not standing for. Or in this case, as we move now to chapter three, we're going to go from closing doors, which is important. Now, chapter three, uh, this, this chapter is about hosting and the power that you or I exert or seed as the host or leader of a gathering. And you entitled the chapter, Don't Be a Chill Host. <laughs> And the idea of kind of um, relaxing, showing that you don't care. And I'm using chill in a very specific way in the kind of millennial jargon that's come to mean I don't give a damn. Um, or for your viewers, I don't give a darn. <laughs> and, um, and the idea is that we, we spend so much time and energy kind of getting people together, whether for a birthday party or a meeting. And then there's become this kind of, I don't know, cultural cachet and looking like we don't care. And it's terrible for gathering. And what, I, uh, what I'm arguing is that if you go through the entire rigmarole of deciding to get people together, hold them once they're actually there. Um, my favorite, and, and, and what I mean by that is you, to protect them, to protect them from each other, that you are the host and that there should be you know, norms and ground rules, implicit or explicit, that if people are being rude or ta- over-talking or, um, you know, or you know, not listening, that you need to correct them in some way that is natural to you or organic. You want to equalize your guests to how, somehow figure out in this room, whatever the hierarchy, they, they may be, you know, VP and intern out in the rest of the, you know, hallway, but in your room, they're equals. Mm-hmm. Maybe what they actually share is a love for soccer. Um, and then the third is to connect them. Don't assume that they're going to connect on their own. My, my favorite example of this in a company is the Alamo Draft House. Um, have you been to one? I haven't, but I loved your rendition of it. Do tell that story. <laughs> so the Alamo Draft House was started in um, Austin, Texas, and the founders of this uh, wanted to create a space where you are, where they were kind of bringing the magic of the movies back to people. And they had a couple of innovations. First, they serve food and drink at the in the venue, mm-hmm. and the second, like their competitors, they also have a rule that you can't talk on your phone or text. But unlike their competitors, unlike AMC and Lowe's, if somebody (laughs) talks or texts, they get one warning. And the second is if they do it again, they get kicked out. Now, most movie theaters also say that. But once they say no talking or texting and play the funny commercial that makes everyone laugh, 
when there's a texture behind you, they put it on you implicitly to figure out what do you do? Do you give them an evil look? Do you hush them? Do you escalate it? And the only time an AMC or Lowe's person will come in is literally if a fight breaks out, right? The, the, the role, the enforcer is the security guard. Mm. At the Alamo, they understand social dynamics and they first realize that the viewer, the crowd is much more likely to see a texture than anyone else. But rather than ratting them out, they allow them to write on a small card. It's the same card that you order food from. So you're not seen to be ratting them out, mm -hmm. right? They understand social pressure. Smart. This person's texting. Then a waiter comes over, gives the person one warning. If they do it again, the waiter who's also serving food and drink escorts them out. And they actually do this. And why I love what they do is because they have a purpose and they are willing to protect their purpose. And that's what makes them great gatherers. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this week's show is brought to you by Handy. Handy is a cleaning service that provides an easy and convenient way to book home cleaning on a schedule that works for you. Over 3 million cleanings have so far been done by Handy. And oh my gosh, my friend Chris Hill has had the opportunity to experience the wonders of Handy. Chris, you're just walking by the studio. Here you are in Rule Breaker Investing. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And, you know, you and I have talked a lot on various podcasts, mostly yours over the years, but here we are briefly talking about Handy. I had a Handy cleaning earlier this week. It was fantastic. As I said on Market Fluid the other day, the guy showed up a few minutes early, and I, in that moment I thought, wow, this is like the cable industry, only the exact opposite. And I, I heard that line from you on Market Fluid, and I, and I loved it. I thought it was good, you know, a random shot at the cable industry. But, <laughs> but rather than just leave a random shot hanging at the cable industry, let's go a little bit more with your experience with Handy. So, um, what was done in your house? The guy came in, asked me a few questions, sort of like, what do you need me to do? What do you want me to focus on? He had all this stuff with him. I, I basically answered a few questions, and within a couple of minutes, this guy was already to work and uh, just basically top to bottom uh, on the first couple of floors of our house, just taking care of everything. Mm -hmm. and, and when he left, it was just like, it was amazing. Okay. It, just everything was cleaner. Everything was better. And it's one of those skills that I have, but it's one of those things where it's like, oh, right. Yes, technically I can do this. This guy's a professional. Right. He now, can actually do it better, faster than I can. Now, did you arrange with your wife that she didn't know, and so you took credit for it, or did she know? I, you know, there's, it's never a good idea to keep a lot of secrets in a marriage. So I, I briefly, I'm not going to lie, I briefly flirted with the idea of just saying, I'm not going to tell her. And then just, play, she just play it up as, hey, I just, I worked from home uh, this morning and I just thought, oh, I'll just, take. no, no, of course I shared the information. All right. Get your first three hour cleaning for $39 when you sign up for a plan. You can visit handy.com slash fool and use promo code fool. During checkout, recurring charge terms and conditions do apply. They're outlined on Handy's site, handy.com slash fool. Use promo code fool to get your first three-hour cleaning for $39. Thanks, Handy. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about home buying for a minute, because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability these days when it comes to buying a home. It's causing a lot of anxiety among some folks. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process. And here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, your assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new, exclusive Rate Shield approval. 
First, they'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. And here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. That sounds like magic to me. But if rates go down, well, your rate also drops. So either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. All right, and then we reach chapter four, which is such a lovely phrase and something that I'll take with me along with many other dictums and bits of advice from your book, Priya. But chapter four, create a temporary alternative world. So whether it's a gathering that you're hosting, like somebody retiring from a company, or a birthday party for a child, or a mega worldwide, world leader, political, global conference. In each case, great hosts and great event planners are creating what you're calling a temporary alternative world. Why is that important? The amazing thing about gathering is that for a limited temporary moment in time, you get to create a moment where you get to set the rules. And everybody implicitly understands this. We just don't think about it explicitly, right? You get to say, me at this time, at this place, wear a costume or don't wear a costume. <laughs> I'm calling it this. I'm going to serve this. I want you to behave this way. And, and the idea that um, we are creating temporary moments where people can behave a thousand different ways um, is, a, is, a, is a way to think about creating an experience for people that they remember differently because of what they showed of their selves at the gathering. So in the world of game design, um, there's this idea of a magic circle. And um, the idea is basically that when you play a game, so say it's tag, um, and it can even be a pickup game. Okay, the rules are the, the two trees are the outer posts. Um, you can say timeout. The, you know, the street is where the other side um, you know, stands behind, ready, set, go. You set up a, a number of rules, people agree to them, and then you step into the magic circle and the idea of, of gameplay, and the rules temporarily shift. And then you can say time out, and you, you know, ask a question, and then you end it. And a game, and a game theory in general, is this idea that for a temporary amount of time, you can shift the rules, everyone agrees on, and then you begin, you have a middle, and you have an end. Gatherings work the exact same way. And the best gatherers understand this. So, you know, we, we think about costume parties or Burning Man, you sort of create this temporary alternative world. But every time you're bringing people together, you also are have an opportunity to help them show decide which part of themselves they want to show. And I think this comes to my own background as, you know, I'm biracial, I'm half Indian, half white American, I'm half kind of Christian, half theosophist, I'm half, you know, I'm all of these various things. And I know, depending on the context that I'm inviting to, I will show a different side of myself. I might make different jokes. My husband often teases me that when I'm with my father's family and somebody sneezes, I say, God bless you. <laughs> when I'm with my mother's family and somebody sneezes, I say, bless you. Hmm. I don't even realize I'm doing this. But we all have different versions of that. And as a host, when you're creating a gathering, one of the things you're helping people understand is which part of themselves is it okay to show here? And... In particular, I found compelling the notion, you call them pop-up rules. Pop-up rules, 
a new form, I would say, of social gatherings. This is a little bit, maybe not done as much 30 years ago. Maybe this is more the gamer crowd and people who like to play werewolf, and I'm one of those too. But the <laughs> concept of receiving an invitation that is telling you, for example, that you're not allowed to mention anything other than your first name for the first hour of the gathering. People who are setting up little rules to create unique gatherings, I find it very compelling. Pop-up rules are a, um, I would say, a very helpful tool in a in an age of modern, multicultural, diverse living. <clears throat> we etiquette worked at a time where we all were raised with the same etiquette, right? We were all wasps, or we're all Tamilian Brahmins, or we're all, you know, Sicilian. We all kind of know how things go. But for most people in the U.S. and in the workplace and globally around the world, more and more, <laughs> we're, we're getting together with people who have different etiquettes. And pop-up rules is a temporary solution to basically say, hey, here are the, roads of the rule. Here are the rules of the road for the next two hours. Again, they should match your purpose. So, for example, Anthony Rocco, an amazing experience designer based out of San Francisco, used to create um, like social evenings for an underground secret society. And he'd have a pop-up rule. When people would walk in, he'd say, um, welcome, bars in the back, only rule is you can't serve yourself a drink. And there was no bartender. <laughs> so so by, he in, by a simple rule, he enforced the fact that everyone had to pour each other a drink, which is this lovely, simple way of getting them to engage in, an, you know, in, in, a, in a, understanding what it was they, they, they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, a different one could be, uh, the House of Genius, which is this kind of brainstorming nights that exist all over the the world for entrepreneurs, they have a set of rules. One is you can't talk about work, you can't say what you actually do, um, and the second is you can't uh, you can't reveal your I think your last name, but you can't basically say who you are until the very end. Yep. And what they do in part again, it serves their purpose. They they bring together um, like eight to twelve people to help a stranger entrepreneur with a business problem. But part of what they realize is that if they, if you know that Johnny Ives is in the room, you know, or an investment banker or whatever you assume has authority, that you will disproportionately listen to that person and might undervalue the person in the room that has great advice, but you're not valuing because of what you think their profession is. And so they've designed these interesting temporary rules that shift people's behavior to get a better outcome. You know, again, a networking night where you're not allowed to talk about what you do for a living. That's interesting. Um, a birthday party where, you know, it was 40th birthday party, a, a guy, um, this was forwarded to me as an email, set a number, set, a, set rules for his birthday party in New Orleans um, that was part of the invitation. And one of them was um, talk to, strike up a local conversation with a stranger, um, take photos, but post nothing, don't miss the flight on the way home. Um, and no hurricanes because he wanted people to have fun but not get so drunk that they, you know, <laughs> that they made a fool of themselves. Um, make up more rules along the way. And so it's this idea that rules can actually be deeply playful. Um, and uh, the last thing I'll just say is rules around technology can also deeply help improve mm. the presence of a night. Um, the phone stack rule, which is started by a, you know, a blogger, ended up being called the Tumblr rule, where you stack your phones in the middle of a table at a dinner party, and the first person to look at their phone puts the bill. <laughs> That's great. All right, so let me briefly see where we've been and then where we're going. So we started with decide why you're, why you're really gathering, and then close doors, don't be a chill host, create a temporary alternative world, and now we next get to logistics, and you've entitled this chapter, Never Start a Funeral with Logistics. Now, 
This chapter, having fully read your book, I know it's not actually about logistics. It's about beginnings and the power, the potential power of doing beginnings right every time. And I have to say, in my own experience, both personally, I now reflect that I've been blowing this. I think maybe our company has been blowing this some, but I see this blown all the time now with your lens <laughs> that the power of beginning is always being destroyed when we start with logistics. You're at a conference and people step onto the stage and say, now before we begin, I just want to let you know that there's two cars uh, illegally parked. Um, before we start, I just want to let you know the bathroom's in the back. Before we start, I just want to let you know that we will be recording live. I mean, maybe you need to communicate that information. But the first opening moments of any experience are the moments where you have people's highest attention and you want to grip them, in part because those are the moments they remember. And to start with purpose, and to start with story, I mean, you can start in a thousand different ways, um, but to not start with logistics. And part of the problem is we think that this is time that doesn't count. And you do need to convey information, but do logistics second, or do them visually, or find a creative way to convey the information, but don't outsource your opening um, to the most boring part of your gathering. Hold it, because it's the moment where people are wondering, what is this? Do I want to be here? Is this cool? Do I want to belong? Um, how do I actually, how do you captivate them to understand that these, this is why we're here? Um, and which side do I want to you know, show of myself? I interview a number of teachers in the book because I think the classroom is such a simple example of a daily gathering over and over and over again. One of the examples I use is um, a professor I had at, uh, I went to MIT Sloan um, and I was in the business school and he, he was an accounting professor. He was starting attendance. It's like as banal as it can get. And the way he did attendance, the first moment, the first day we'd ever met him, was he um, looked up, 90 students in a kind of a U, the way the classroom was, was set up, and he took attendance by memory. He'd never met any of us, and he had no like scroll in front of him. And he figured out, he clearly spent time memorizing all of us, staring at our photos, memorizing our names. And in that moment, it was very moving. Like Many of us were almost in tears. Because he honored us, he showed that he cared, and he also showed us that he was brilliant and that we better you know, pay attention because we could learn something from this guy. Mm. And in the book, you say, a colleague in the conflict resolution field taught me a principle you say I've never forgotten. You call it, well, you say 90% of what makes a gathering successful is put in place beforehand. That 90% rule that you're talking about, I mean, there's a professor who was putting in a lot of effort beforehand before things even started and then used the beginning brilliantly. And 90% rule means every gathering is a social contract. And what I mean, I mean that in the political theory sense of that word, that you are for a temporary moment of time saying, this is what I'm offering you. This is what I'm asking of you. These are the rules of the road. But a huge amount of that should happen ahead of time. So an invitation shouldn't just be a conveyor or purveyor of logistics. It shouldn't just be date, time, and place. You should give your gathering a name. Like rather than a dinner party, to use Jancy Dunn's word as a writer, she, she hosted a dinner party called the Worn Out Mom's Hootenanny. That's a very different thing than like a dinner party for moms, right? Think about what are you asking people to do? If you're asking them to show up on time, you know, if you, whatever it is to get them to understand what this is ahead of time um, or having them bring something. So Michelle Laprie in the book um, is a choreographer at Cirque du Soleil and he hosted a, a holiday party and he asked all of his friends in an email, simple, simple invitation to send two moments of happiness from their life over the uh, previous year, uh, before before they invitate before they arrived, mm. Michelle took them. He printed them out. He made 
uh, those his ornaments on the tree. He hung them on the tree, and they and the twelve guests who didn't know each other walked in and saw their moments, each other's moments of happiness and their own moments of happiness on the tree. And the rest of the night took off because of it. Spectacular. What a brilliant creative idea. Not surprising coming from Cirque du Soleil. Um, so, Priya, from Chapter 5, we hit Chapter 6, Keep Your Best Self Out of My Gathering. Obviously, I want you to explain what you mean by that, but I certainly would love for you just to spend a couple of minutes and explain how you invented the 15 Toasts format, which is I know you've used many times. I'm sure others are copying it and using it. It's a brilliant idea, but it comes out of the idea of being authentic with each other and not just being the fake, perfect person who's happy at every gathering, especially business gatherings can, can fall into this networking, these kinds of things. Um, so, give us, give us a little bit more wisdom here. At the core of why we gather is because we need each other. The irony is that we behave like we don't. Hmm. All I'm saying is to begin to show a little leg collectively that we actually do need each other. You know, Brene Brown talks about the power of vulnerability beautifully and has research to back it. Um, and all, a lot of that conversation is about individual, one-on-one you know, intimacy and vulnerability. Um, what I'm interested in is how does that actually work at the level of a collective group? And when I, I was a member of the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on Values, it's a mouthful. <laughs> to pause every time I say it. <laughs> and we were coming together for, um, for a meeting with all of these different councils. And one of the things that I'd noticed was that uh, even when the content was values, and I was also on a council called the New Models of Leadership, even when they, these were human topics, the way we would behave and act and talk in meetings um, we're basically kind of sh- like acting like press secretaries, kind of spinning stories and making sure that we look strong and that our businesses were strong and that we, you know, de- we deserve to belong there. And, you know, and, and one of the things that um, so, so a colleague of mine and I, Tim Leberek, decided that the night before this gathering, we wanted to see if we could hack the, the gathering by hosting a small kind of radically different dinner party where we invited 15 people across council, mm-hmm. whom we didn't know, um, to come together and have a dinner together that felt more like weddings and board meetings. We, um, we invited them to come. We chose a theme, and we chose a good life, uh, which is different than the good life, but basically what makes a good life. Mm-hmm. And um, the night before, I was very nervous, and I thought, how are we going to have a conversation about a good life with 15 people? Like, what does this actually <laughs> look like? And... Long story short, through conversation, I was also my husband was there, and we kind of played around with this format, and we decided to try a format out. We later called it 15 Toasts, but the people, you know, came, they gathered, we gathered around a table. I we stood up, and we, we, we shared these rules, and they are. At some point in the night, we invite you to stand up, old school style, ding your glass, and give a toast. What we want to hear from you is an experience or a story from you that relates to a good life. But we, what we don't want to hear from you are all of the amazing accomplishments. Um, all, you wouldn't be here if you, you know, weren't accomplished. We know that you are amazing. But what we really want to hear is a room or, that you've been in that none of us know or an experience that you've had that relates to this in some way. And um, the only other rule is that you have to, the last person has to sing their toast. Now, what that does <laughs> is it speeds the night along. Um, <laughs> But one of the things, and the second thing was I realized as a host, I needed to be vulnerable. 
So to ask people to kind of share a story, a group is only going to go as deep as the host will allow and show themselves. It's rare to go deeper because the group is mirroring you. Gathering is a form of power and it's also a form of love. And whatever your discomforts are will likely extend to the group because they're watching you. And so one of the things that ended up happening is people, as we kind of went into the night, and you can read about this in the book, it's very difficult to talk about what a good life is without also talking about death. And very quickly, people started sharing kind of amazing, vulnerable, beautiful, personal, rich, complicated stories that we remembered for the rest of our lives. But we also saw that we all had many sides and we were complicated and that actually these are people who not only could help me, but I want to spend time with. And what could that actually mean and look like if we were to bring that lens, mm. that part of ourselves, to a question about what does values look like you know, for the world or what do new models of leadership look like? How do we embody the values that we're trying to bring about in the world? And this was all for a pre-event supper, and I know that's part of your bag of tricks as a professional. Priya, if, if we were to hire you to run something for a, like a Motley Fool off-site, that kind of a thing, you almost insist, don't you, that there's a supper the night before? People are primed by whatever you give them. And so one of the things that I do is the night before any gathering that I can absolutely, uh, you know, if I, if I have my way, is to do a dinner the night before where we show each other our fuller selves. So I was, I was facilitating a gathering of political leaders um, a couple of years ago around um, the issue of kind of religious liberty um, and, and religion and a lot of kind of the different various political elements of, uh, of this very heated issue. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a, we chose the theme of faith defined broadly, which was in that context is a very loaded word. And um, the night before, hosted a 15 Toast to Faith. And people shared the most beautiful stories of what of, of faith defined for them. And it did not mean religion. So one story and the rules of a 15 Toast are that you can share each other's stories, but you can't attribute them to anything. So I'm not bringing any rules here by talking about it. But mm-hmm. one woman um, shared a story about how She was raised Catholic. It was a very strong part of her identity. Um, And when her grandfather passed away, they went into the attic to kind of go through their stuff, his stuff, and they found a box with a yarmulke and a Torah in it. Mm. And they realized that he was Jewish Mm. and he had Mm. converted and he had hid it. And so were they. Mm. And I will always remember that story, but so will everybody else in the group. And when they started to get into their very complicated elements of, you know, of the content that, that was at hand the next day, they were looking at each other with their very complicated, paradoxical selves. And one of them, for me as a conflict resolution facilitator, the core element of what I work with is identity. And when identity, there are certain elements that are broadly fixed. You can't change over time, but there are many parts of us that are still changing and growing. And that can be added and it can be taken away and can be transformed. And when you can create a gathering where people realize that and start to understand that their identity is still a work in process, you can really create anything. And it is that authenticity and that vulnerability and bringing your full self that is so important to gatherings. And I think it's brilliant that you set people up for human moments before asking them to go through more professional motions the day or two or three after. So... Awesome. All right. There are two last chapters to talk about, and let's just take them at the same time. The first is 
Chapter 7 caused good controversy, so obviously I would like you to define what good controversy <laughs> is. And then Chapter 8, and this will also be true of this interview, except that there is an end. And so thinking in the same way that you get us to be better about beginnings, you also want us to think hard about endings and maybe not exiting with logistics. Um, good controversy is uh, the idea that transformative gatherings have some element of risk. And I'm a conflict resolution facilitator, so a lot of the things I work with tend to be heat. And what I mean by heat is it could be conflict, it can be taboo, it can be about power, it can be about basically the things to put in a, um, the words of Ida Benedito, an experience designer I interviewed, mm -hmm. the things a group is avoiding. Mm -hmm. And she asked this question, you can read about her in The Art of Gathering in more detail, she's a fascinating experience designer that creates these kind of, she calls herself a transgression consultant. She helps groups transgress boundaries, navigate boundaries, physical, psychological boundaries with safety. And before she designs any experience, she asks four questions, and this can help you and me and, and your listeners. One, what is this group avoiding? Two, what is the gift in facing it? Three, what is the risk in facing it? And four, is the gift worth the risk? Hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I think that, as you've pointed out, what's underneath so many gatherings is a lot of additional subtext and things happening deep under the ocean that um, the more that we can get those things out, especially, obviously, in the field of conflict resolution, your professional calling, but at events, at conferences, often we're talking around the things that we really are feeling inside. And the more that we can cause that good controversy, maybe have a professional facilitator, somebody who, can, who knowingly puts us in those places, so much good can come from that. And it might not be through conversation. Conversation is a very elevated form of, of generous controversy. It could be through design choices. I, was, I knew of a group that was an immigrant group in India. The context of if you're vegetarian or not vegetarian is a very controversial issue. Riots are started because of it. It often divides along caste lines, religious lines. Mm. It's a minefield. And this was a, a, a Indian American, a kind of second generation group that was doing a large gathering, and it was a very big decision about. They've always been the, the conference and the gathering has always been vegetarian, and the the youngins, the next generation, was taking over, and they had to make a decision of whether or not they wanted to introduce meat. And for them, that alone, forget what you talked about over three days. That alone, if they decided to do that, would signal that, like, we are changing. And we are still, it doesn't mean that we are no longer Indian, you know, or whatever the context mm -hmm. is. Um, but there, heat exists in a lot of different ways. You know, in an interracial or interreligious couple, you're getting together with Thanksgiving, one, one side is Jewish, one side is Christian. The Christian side always begins with prayer. Do you begin with prayer or not? And since we probably do need to draw this to an end, although Priya has been gracious enough to accept my invitation to do an extra, so we're going to have some fun. I'm going to ask her, uh, coming up this weekend, I'm going to ask her advice for panels, because a lot of us have to do panels or have experience with, with panels. I'm also going to ask her her take on Martha Stewart, how to do a family reunion, a few other things, Priya. We're going to cover that there. But for now, I think we should probably start to pull 
toward an end. Chapter 8, except that there is an end. And I have to admit, I'm one of those people who doesn't really want things to end. So, sometimes I overstay my welcome at your party. And other times, I don't want you to leave my party. And I can't really sometimes accept that there's an end. And maybe it's that I can't accept that mortality is mortality. But help (laughs) us end well. Not just this podcast, but our gatherings. Most gatherings stop. They don't end. And in the same way that you're bringing people in, you're ushering them into a world, you also need to help them leave it. That can be as simple as giving a closing toast. That can mean walking them to the door rather than letting themselves out. Um, That can be uh, inviting them to join you in the living room for uh, after dinner drink, signaling that that the night is winding down. Um, but again, I you know conferences that I've been to where the end is a five minute kind of a set of thank yous. <laughs> thank yous when not done well are also a form of logistics. You can do thank yous in a beautiful, meaningful, honoring specific way. Um, but as you're first of all, don't end on a thank you. Do it second to last and do it in a way that is specific and gives people information about how and what that person did to uh, to to help your gathering. Um, and but the Third, the final is end on purpose. End with the things you want people to remember. Um, give them something to walk out the door with. My, I have a three-year-old son, and he's part of a music class. His teacher is called Jesse Goldman. He's a singer-songwriter. And every, at the end of every class, he strums the final note of the first song. He then pauses and makes announcements. Bring me your check. Uh, no class next week. <laughs> Wear Halloween costumes the third week of October. And then he continues the song. So it's, the logistics are literally within the song. Mm-hmm. He sings a goodbye song where everyone says their name. And then he says, who wants a stamp? And then all of the kids run towards him, and he gives them a musica stamp. It's branded. They walk back out into the light of day. All of the other kids say, whoa, what was that temporary alternative world they were a part of? My mm-hmm. language, not theirs. Mm-hmm. But he knows how to exit them. And so similarly, accept that there is an end first. Don't, you know, don't ghost it as a host. Um, and then, and then think about how. What do you want this group to remember? Priya, to close well, then, what do you want my rule breaker investing listeners most of all to remember from this gathering together? That gathering is a form of power, and that gathering is a form of love, and that in this day and age, when so many things are changing, what is not changing is that our gatherings can be powerful, and that we need them. What is changing is that you can make up the rules on how you want to do it and do it in a way that reflects you organically and that it takes courage to do so. But that courage and that risk-taking is the deepest form of generosity. Her book is The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. And, of course, if you'd like to reach out to Priya Parker, well, you can find her in social media. For example, you'll see her, Priya Parker, on Instagram. She also has her website, Priya, that's P-R-I-Y-A Parker.com, Priya Parker.com. You can reach her that way as well. Priya Parker, thank you for joining us on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you for having me. Well, if I were really a good disciple of Priya's, I probably would have left it right there, because that was a pretty perfect ending. But unfortunately, I do have a little bit of housekeeping to close with, but I think it's still of interest. I hope it will be, because Priya is back this weekend for a short extra. So, join us via iTunes or Google Play or Spotify, whatever your podcast venue of choice is, and download my extra. I'm going to ask her things like, what does she think of Martha Stewart's advice? And how can I improve my next family reunion? Or, 
since she's called panels, like being on one of those panels at a conference, she's called them the most lamentable of gatherings. How can we do those better? So, we're going to have fun this weekend with Priya. Please join in. And then next week, I'll be interviewing Amor Tolls, the celebrated author of the novel A Gentleman in Moscow. So, in the meantime, I just want to thank you for gathering with me this week. Fulan. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.